This morning as we come to our text um, in Mark chapter 8, you know, I'm reminded that there's a lot of ways that people can try and figure out or get to know you or get to know your identity or my identity. There's a lot of talk these days even about identity. Uh, you know, one way I was thinking perhaps if, if I had your purse or your wallet, and I thought about asking one of you to give it to me, but I won't do that. But if I had your purse or your wallet, there's probably some ways that I could get to know you even without asking you any questions or talking with you. I could pull out your wallet, or if you pulled out my wallet, uh, perhaps you could look in it and, and maybe see a driver's license. And just that piece of information alone would tell you really a good deal about a person's identity. Uh, you would find out that, uh, that at least the Commonwealth of Massachusetts trusts them to drive a motor vehicle, so that tells you something. That may not tell you much in this state, but it tells you something. You can look at their picture, and maybe from their picture and maybe looking at their name, you can try and figure out or have an idea of a, a nationality or a place of origin or maybe an ethnicity. You can see their date of birth and find out how old they are. You can uh, maybe find out if they're an organ donor or if they wear glasses or all kinds of things. If you continue to look through, uh, you know, a wallet or a purse, you might find out where a person likes to shop. Uh, you might find out some places they like to frequent, they're members of. Uh, you might find out uh, clubs or associations that they're a part of. It'll tell you something about a person. There's other forms of identity, especially in our world. There's something called your online identity, right? You, you, have an, you know this or not, you have an online identity, whether it's connected to your name or an IP address or your computer. Someone is collecting information on you just about every time you go online. You know, the, place, the web pages you go to, the searches you do, the things you buy, the things you purchase, you are creating an online identity, and companies are creating whole industries and making a huge amount of, of uh, money off people's online identities and this data that's created. I mean, I don't know if it freaks anyone else out when you go to Google, and on the side of the page, there's something there that you're like, oh, yeah, I needed to buy that. And it's not an accident. It's not a coincidence. Someone is creating an online identity for you, and you and I have online identities. And then you have something called a, a, a financial identity, right? And we hear a lot about that these days, just about every week. In fact, this past week, I think it was uh, Chase, uh, that, uh, J.P. Morgan Chase, that had a breach in their, you know, security. And so people want to know if their financial identity has been compromised. And, and that is, you know, your, your identity that has to do with purchasing, maybe connected to bank accounts or credit cards or passwords or, or, or anything that would give access to your financial information and people are concerned and, uh, well, should be about their financial identity. But even all of these, whether it's a license or an online identity or financial identity, even if I know all of that about you, and if you know all that about me, it doesn't mean you really know who I am. Or it doesn't mean that I really know who you are, right? I mean, I can know all that stuff about you and still not know what it sounds like when you laugh. Or not know what makes you laugh. I can know all of those things about you and not know whether you cry at sappy commercials or not. Or I may know that you're married, but I don't know maybe what makes you uh, feel loved or how you express love. 
I, I could find out maybe that you don't have any kids, but I may not know if that's because you're trying and it hasn't happened or you didn't want any kids. I, I don't know that information. I don't know what your hopes and your dreams are. I can know a lot of information about you without really knowing your identity. We come to today's passage, Jesus is, I believe, really concerned about his identity. In fact, I think up to this point in the book of Mark, we're just about almost at the exact halfway point. Jesus and the gospel writer Mark, inspired by the Holy Spirit, has been very concerned about the identity of Jesus. In fact, I think it's why, for these first eight chapters, why so many times when Jesus would do a healing or deliver someone from oppression of a demon, he would say, don't tell anyone. Don't tell anyone about it. You know, he, he would do this great and incredible miracle, and if it was us, we'd be so tempted to tell everyone about it. And Jesus so often says, don't tell anyone about it. And, and we talked about a little bit that there's practical reasons to this. That when people went and told everyone about the healings that Jesus did, it made it much more difficult for him to minister in other cities. He, he, he couldn't even go in. There were some cities he couldn't even go into because the crowd was so big and it made it so difficult and he couldn't even go into places he wanted to go to. So there were very practical reasons to it. But I think even more importantly, there's a theological reason and a reason that we need to be aware of of why Jesus was so concerned about his identity. When he would tell people not to tell people that he had done the miracle, I think it was Jesus's, um, it was his life lock. It was his identity theft protection. Uh, it was him protecting his identity until it was the right time for him to let it out. In today's passage, we have one of the last times in the book of Mark that Jesus tells someone not to share his identity. In fact, I think it's the last time in the book of Mark. He's done it four or five times thus far, but for the rest in the second half and the next eight chapters, this is the last time Jesus will tell someone not to tell other people who he's, he is. And I think it's important for us to understand why that is the case. Mark chapter 8, verses 27 to 30. Mark writes this. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, who do people say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. But what about you? He asked, who do you say I am? Peter answered, you are the Christ. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. Who do people say that Jesus is? It's an important question. It got varied answers back then. I think it would get varied answers today. Some people you talk to may say that, well, Jesus was a, a religious leader that had something to do with the Christian faith. It might be the rarity that you would even get that much of an answer. Some people you say, who is Jesus? And they would say, I, I think he was a, a somewhat of a moral teacher. Others might say uh, maybe a philosopher like 
Socrates or Plato has said some wise things. Others might still say I, he was just a historical figure like Lincoln or Washington. Someone might say, he, I think he has something to do with Christmas, though they might not be able to tell you what. There'd be others that would have absolutely no clue. And they would say, you must mean Jesus. He lives a couple blocks away. Or they would say, I have no idea what you're talking about. And that's the reality. We live in a country where you can say Jesus, and there's some people who would have no bearing or paradigm to even fit that in. But it's an important question. Jesus asked his followers, who are people saying I am? And he said, some say you're John the Baptist back from the dead. Certainly Herod thought that. Herod, who had killed John the Baptist, thought that Jesus was, a, uh, was John the Baptist coming back to kind of haunt him. Others thought, well, maybe you're Elijah because the scriptures say that Elijah is going to come before the Messiah comes and maybe you're him. And others think you're a great prophet. But then Jesus gets to the heart of the issue. Who do you say I am? And that's really the question, right? I mean, the question isn't who do others say that he is. It's not who your friends say Jesus is. It's not who your family says Jesus is. It's not who your pastor says Jesus is. I mean, the question really is who do you say that Jesus is? I mean, he really gets to the heart of the issue and really wants to know who do you think that I am? Who do you say I am? And Peter, as Peter often does, he speaks right up. And he gets it right. He says, you are the Christ. And let's just be clear on what this means. Christ is not Jesus' last name. And I say that in all seriousness, because I think there are some people you would talk to that would think that is literally Jesus' last name. It's not. It's a title. Christ is a title. It, it really means the anointed one. It had a theological meaning, and it had a political meaning. It came to have a political meaning. It, it, the, the picture is that in the Old Testament, when God would appoint a king of his people, Israel, that a prophet would come along and would pour oil over this appointed person. They would be anointed as the king, and that is the image that comes when Christ is, that this is the anointed one. This is the one God has chosen. And so Peter says, you are that man. By the time the Jesus' day had come around, it had also come to mean a kind of a political leader that would deliver his people from oppression, specifically the oppression of the Romans. And so Peter says, that's who you are. You are the Christ. You are the anointed one of God. You are the one we've been waiting for. You are the king. And Jesus says, you're right. Don't tell anyone. And while we might understand why he says it after the miracles, while we might understand why he tries to keep his identity close to him after a deliverance of a demon, it seems strange that he would, after this declaration, when someone declares, you are the king of kings, the anointed one of God, the one we have been waiting for, that Jesus says, 
don't tell anyone. And I think there's a very important reason why Jesus does that. See, what Jesus knew back then, what also happens today, and Jesus knew that some people only get part of the story. Some people only get part of his identity right. Some people, or some people take a part and leave another part. And he knew that the temptation was that if people anointed him and recognized him as king right now in this point of his ministry with only these first, uh, this first half of the gospel of Mark, this first half of his ministry, that they would get the wrong idea of the kind of king he was. See, they would, they would have a part of an idea. They know he heals, and they know he feeds, and they know he protects but they don't know anything else. And Jesus knew back then what happens today is that some people take part of the gospel. Some people preach part of the gospel. I'd say some people preach half of Mark because the only part of Messiah and King that they see is the one we see in the first half of Mark. It happened back then. It happens today. Maybe you've heard the term uh, used prosperity gospel. Or maybe you've heard the term health and wealth gospel. And you wonder, and maybe you know what that means. Or maybe you have an idea what that means. And maybe you have a question. What does, you know, what does that mean? Because there are definitely people, I believe, today that would preach half the book of Mark. They'd preach a prosperity gospel. And there's a number of different ways to define it. But I just define it. The thinking usually goes this way. Jesus is the king. Just like Peter said, we would say that Jesus is the king. You are a child of the king, daughter or son of the king. And since you are a child of the king, then you ought to have all the benefits of being in the kingdom. Right now, you ought to have the the wealth of the king, the health of the king, and everything that goes along with that. And if you have those things, then you are blessed by God. And if you do not have those things, then there's probably something wrong with you that you don't have enough faith, that you don't believe enough, that, you don't, that, that you, you're not trusting enough, because this is the gospel, they would say. That, that there's these good things that God has for you, and you should have them all. And if we only had the first part of the book of Mark, we might think that. In fact, if the book of Mark stopped right there, I think it'd be a New York Times bestseller. Because who doesn't want that? We all want that. We all should want that. They're not bad things to want. The problem with the disciples is if they only got that, they would miss something else that's important to Jesus' identity. See, the disciples, what they didn't realize is that when the Messiah came, he was going to come twice. In fact, nobody realized that. Everybody thought that he was going to come once. Nobody saw it coming that he was going to come first as a suffering servant to pay for the sins of humanity. And then he would come again as a conquering king. And that's what we're waiting on now, that second coming of Jesus Christ. See, before Jesus, nobody connected Isaiah chapter 53, the suffering servant, with the Messiah. They didn't see that. They thought, yes, the Bible talks about some servant that's going to suffer, and we don't know what that means, but it's certainly not the anointed Messiah of God. And then Jesus comes, and he says, I am the Messiah. 
and I'm that suffering servant. Because he knew that they need to understand that part of his identity as well. Let's look at the rest of Mark chapter 8, verses 31 to 37. Jesus says this, He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. And he called the crowd to him, along with his disciples, and said, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world, yet forfeit his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. Son of Man, if, if you're not familiar with that term, it's a it's a title from the book of Daniel that refers to the Messiah and the Anointed One. It's another way to refer to the Messiah as Son of Man. Jesus sometimes uses that title to refer to himself. And he says, look, he's basically saying, look, if, if you're ashamed of me at my first coming, I'm going to be ashamed of you at my second coming. And he says, don't get this wrong. I'm a king, you've got that right. But I'm a king who's going to a cross. And if you're going to follow me, you've got to go to a cross too. Jesus says, you're right, Peter. You got it right. I am the Christ. I am the king. I am the anointed one. I am the one sent from God. I'm the one you've been waiting for. But I'm a king who's going to a cross. And if you want to follow me, you've got to go to a cross too. And if you want to follow me, you're going to have to suffer too. If you want to follow me, you're going to have to deny yourself. If you want to be one of my followers, you're going to have to lose your life. And this is where he stops telling others not to tell anyone about him anymore because he doesn't need to. Because you know what happens when you start talking about dying? The crowds start to go away. And the crowds start to walk away. Who knew that come and be healed was so much more attractive than come and die? That's Jesus' message. And he knew that if you only get the come and be healed part and you miss the come and die part, then you have missed the identity of Jesus. Because both are true of him as Messiah and King. And so when he says, Peter, you're right, I am the Christ, but to this point, all you've seen is me heal, feed, protect, stop storms. Now you're going to see another part of me, and you need to have that other part to understand that I'm going to a cross. In fact, I must go to a cross. That word must is so critical in there. 
no other way. Peter says, no, 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 not you. Speaks up, right? Peter's just voicing what everyone else was thinking. Nobody before Jesus connected these suffering servant passages with the Messiah. Peter has grown up from a little boy hearing about the Messiah, and never has he heard that he's going to die, certainly not on a cross. So Peter is correcting him. No, you're wrong, Jesus. If you're the Christ, you can't, these don't go together. You, you, can't, you can't be the Christ and the suffering servant. These don't go together. And I love that Mark records this detail. Jesus turns and looks at his disciples. Because what it is in that moment is a temptation from Satan. It's a temptation just as he was tempted in the desert while he was fasting. There's a shortcut. You don't have to go through the cross. Why don't you throw yourself off this building right now and, and your father will, you know, save you and people, you know, the world can be yours. There's a shortcut. And you don't have to go through the cross. He'll be tempted again in the Garden of Gethsemane a different way. And he knows right now that he's being tempted to take a shortcut. No, Jesus, you don't have to do it. And then Jesus turns and looks at his disciples. And he knows that this is... This is basically Satan speaking through Peter. And he says, no, you, you don't have a mind the things of God. You have a mind the things of men. There's no shortcut, Peter. I'm a king, but I'm a king who's going to a cross. And if you want to follow me, you've got to carry a cross too. They didn't understand this, but Jesus began to teach it said, I must go to a cross. And maybe if you've been in the church for a number of years, you understand that Jesus had to go to a cross. And maybe if you've been here a long time, you understand the idea that sin required a price. And God established it long ago that the price was a blood sacrifice. And, and we learn in the book of Hebrews that the blood of animals didn't cover it. It just delayed until the true sacrifice and a blood sacrifice wasn't simply someone dying. Why couldn't Jesus come, live out an old life, old age, and just die off and be the sacrifice for our sins? No, because that wasn't a blood sacrifice. A sacrifice had to be something that was cut off in an unnatural way in the course of life as a sacrifice. That was the only way it could happen. And so he said, I must die because a debt has been incurred debt of sin that cannot be repaid and unless I do this you can't have a relationship with God so he looks at his disciples and knows that this is the only way he knew that if he were simply a king as Tim Keller puts it this way if he were simply a king on a throne we would worship him out of obligation but because he's a king on a cross we can come to him out of love and he knew he must go to a cross and he must die and so, but here's my point. Even if you accept that, even if you understand that, even if you don't like it, I don't like it. I wish it wasn't the case. I mean, I, I don't like the fact that Jesus and God himself had to come down to pay for my sin. That's, that's not a pleasant thought. It's, it's a pleasant, it's, it's great to know that he did and was willing to do it and how overwhelming that is, the love of God, that he'd be willing to do that, but it should grieve us that he had to do it. 
But let's say we agree and say, okay, that's the way it had to be. The question I've been wrestling with this week is then why the next part? If Jesus died for our sins, why does he go on to say, and you have to take up your cross too? That's my question. If Jesus did it and accomplished the work, why does he go on to say, and you're going to have to take up your cross too? I mean, that's the one this week I've been turning over and over in my mind, saying Jesus did the work. Why, do I, why does he say you're going to have to suffer if you're going to be a follower of me? Didn't Jesus do the suffering? Didn't Jesus pay the price? I mean, do I have to also pay for my sin? Does my denial of self and taking up my cross somehow add something to the work of Christ to accomplish that work within me? No, of course not. Jesus' work alone is all sufficient to cleanse us from our sins. So why? Why does he say, if you're going to follow me, you're going to have to carry a cross too? Let's make no mistake about what he means by carrying a cross. We use the term way too flippantly and way too easily. He, he, we say, oh, that's just my cross to bear. You know, whether it's a weight problem that we're dealing with or an issue in life with, our, you know, with something that happened to us as a kid. We say, well, that's my cross to bear. Or we didn't get into the school we wanted. And we say, well, that's just my cross to bear. And we throw around this term in a flippant way. And, and whatever is difficult in life, we just call it a cross that we have to bear. Make no mistake that Jesus' disciples did not hear it that way. When Jesus said, you're going to have to take up your cross and follow me, they knew exactly what he meant, and they knew the picture that was coming to their mind because they'd seen it again and again and again because they lived in the midst of a Roman Empire, that the way the Roman Empire showed its power was by showing what would happen to you if you rebelled against Rome. And so they would set up crosses. We talk about three crosses on the day that Jesus was crucified. Don't, don't miss the picture. There were times where the Roman Empire would set up hundreds of crosses with people crucified on them right along the road so that you would walk beside them and know that if you rebel against Rome, this is what happens. And they would leave the bodies hanging there so that every person that walked by would know that if you would rebel, this is what's going to happen to you. And ever since these disciples were little kids, they understood what it meant to carry a cross, that a person carrying that cross beam through the city, that they were on a death march, and they were sentenced to execution, and all they were doing was carrying this beam that they were going to be nailed to and killed on. And Jesus says, you're going to have to carry your cross. And when they hear that, they think execution. They think death. That's all they're thinking. They're not thinking about a, a, a pretty bronze cross hanging on a wall or something worn around your neck. They're thinking about an ugly wooden cross covered in blood and where someone is killed upon it. And Jesus says, if you're going to follow me, you're going to have to carry your cross. And the crowds left. See, when they heard self-denial... They weren't thinking about giving up dessert for 40 days before Easter. 
They knew that self-denial was going to mean giving up and dying to their selves. The cross is a symbol of death. It was not a metaphor. It was not a piece of jewelry. It was a constant reminder of death. They had all seen crosses. They had all witnessed it. So here's what I think it is. When Jesus says we're to take up our cross, this is nothing less than the full and complete, relentless execution of everything within us that is contrary to the purposes of God. When Jesus says that you and I are to take up our cross, what he's saying is every single thing that lives within you that is contrary to the purposes of God needs to be put to death. Jesus is not saying you've got to pay for your sins. What he is saying is everything within you that, that drove me to the cross to pay for your sins needs to die. Everything that required Jesus to go to the cross that still lives within you needs to die. What Jesus is saying is there is a flesh, an old man, whatever you want to call it, that, that, that side of you that is there, that will be there unless you put it to death every day. That anything that is within you that is contrary to the purposes of God needs to die. And when he says, take up your cross, he is talking about the complete and utter execution of everything within us that's contrary to the purposes of God. We don't have to take up our cross in order to pay for our sins. Jesus did that. We have to conduct an execution of everything within us that required his going to the cross. Self-denial is not some self-pity or self-mortification or self-hate, as it were, where we wallow in our shame and guilt and think that we're not worth anything. The cross of Jesus says the exact opposite. It says you are worth everything and you have a great and inestimable value. It is protecting that part of you that is most valuable. To take him up our cross is saying that we will not settle for the trite pleasures of this world and trade the ultimate pleasures that God has for us. That we will not settle for what may be a temporary and immediate satisfaction and sacrifice on that altar, the long-term satisfaction. Self-denial means that things that may seem to come naturally to us but are contrary to the will of God must be put to death. The cross puts the nature-nurture debate to bed. The cross says it doesn't matter if you were raised that way or if you were born that way. If it's contrary to the purpose of God, it needs to die. Anything within you, anything within us that lives that is contrary to the purpose of God needs to be put to death. We are all born sinners. Some of us may have been born with a proclivity to one sin or another or maybe something you were exposed to as a child gave you a proclivity to fall into one sin or another, and you struggle with that. But whether it's nature or whether it's nurture, the cross means we don't make excuses. But Jesus is saying you take it up, you deny yourself, and you follow him. But that means following Jesus is going to cost something. Well, what if you gained the whole world and lost your soul, Jesus says. You don't want to make that trade. 
What if at the end of life you had everything this world had to offer? But you didn't have your soul paid for, secured through Jesus Christ. It's not worth it. And that's when he says, look, you can be ashamed of me at my first coming. You don't have to. You don't have to stand with me. You don't have to take up your cross. But it says these hard words, and these are hard sometimes for us to hear. We know the loving, graciousness of our Lord. But he says these words of truth. He said, look, if, you, if you're ashamed of me here, if you're ashamed of me now, I'll be ashamed of you before my Father when I come in power. And he's basically saying, you know, this is, this is the first time I'm coming as a suffering servant. The second time I'm coming the way you expected as a conquering king. Mark was writing this book to Christians in Rome who were beginning to suffer for their decision to follow Jesus. The persecution that was happening in Jerusalem was starting to get back to Rome. They were beginning to suffer family alienation, financial hardship, and even physical persecution. They would have been tempted to deny Jesus when asked if they were Christians. Jesus says there's a more important judgment, and when you affirm me here, I will affirm you there. If Jesus had come to heal and feed only, then where did that leave them who were hurt and hungry? They would have had to believe that they had been forgotten by God. See, that's the danger. It's the danger when we preach only half of the gospel, when we preach this prosperity gospel. The danger is that the people that aren't living in that prosperity, the people that are living in other parts of the world that don't experience that, they have to believe there's something wrong with them or God just forgot them. If there's no other side where it says, you know, you're going to have to suffer and there's a cross, then where does it leave them? And the American church needs to understand that when we preach half a gospel that talks only about health and wealth, how much of a slap in the face that is to so much of the world that is hungry and dying and yet clinging to Jesus as their Lord. We need to understand that this idea of carrying a cross was not, was not some easy thing that Jesus was calling his followers to. In fact, at one point, Jesus turns to his disciples. Everyone had left him. He said, are you going to leave too? Because he knew it was a hard teaching. And he said, they said, where would we go? Denying self is the only way that Jesus could command us to love our enemies and pray for them. It's just too obvious for me not to make the connection to what's going on in our world right now because you've seen it and so have I. How do you pray for an ISIS fighter? Can you do that? Jesus says pray for your enemies. And too often we think our enemy is that person who said something on Facebook that offended us. Or that person at work who, who betrayed us. And we think that's our enemy. And yet we see in our world when you see a, a people whose intent is on killing and destroying and taking the life of Christians no matter what their age. And we say, Jesus says, pray for your enemies. 
does that mean it's wrong to send troops or to fight evil in this world? I don't think so. I think the Bible says that there's a king and he's supposed to wield a sword justly and, and uh, he doesn't bear the sword for nothing. But yet you as a Christian, me as a Christian, we're called to pray. Pray for our enemies. To love those who hate us. Could you do it? If one were to come and threaten your life or me, could we pray that God would forgive them? I don't know. Here's what I know. That in that moment, I'd like to be able to live that way. I'd like to be able to believe that, but here's what I know, that there's something within me that has to die first. Because if you're dead already, nobody can kill you. Because if you've already died to yourself, then they can only take your physical life. And that's what Jesus means, that when you come to the place where you will die to yourself, then when the disciples in the book of Acts are whipped for their faith, they walk away going, praise God, because we've already died and there's nothing they can do to hurt us. That these men will give their life, be crucified and killed and murdered for their faith. They've already died. And I don't know if I could, I asked myself this question again and again this week. I don't know if I could stand there like these Christians are and not betray their Lord in the face of losing their physical life. But I know to be able to do that, I'd have to be able, something within me has to die. Something within me has to say that my life after this world and my Lord are worth more than anything you can take from me here. Something within me has to say that I will bear that cross. Jesus wasn't calling them to some trite obligation. He's calling them to die. But he said, I'm going to do it first. And he hung up on that cross. And he said the words, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. And if my Lord can do that, then it's up to us to pray that whatever within us needs to die so that we can do that, that that piece of us will be put to death so that we can live completely and fully to God. The gospel, though, though that we're talking about the cross, I can't help but must close on this. The gospel, the word gospel itself means good news. And Jesus isn't talking about dying for no good reason. He isn't talking about giving your life for nothing. The good news is that when you and I lose our life for Jesus and the gospel, what you'll find is that there, that is the only way you can find what you've been looking for all your life. That when you lose your life, what you find in Christ is the life you've been looking for all along. A life that's fully known, fully loved, fully forgiven. A life that is free of shame and guilt. A life that is built not on your works, but on the work of Christ. A life that is lived by the power of the Holy Spirit and not in your own strength. An acceptance that comes not from your work, but from the cross of Jesus Christ. 
And that's what Jesus says. So he says, if you lose your life for me, I promise you're going to find it. But if you try and hold on to it so tight and you're ashamed of me and you try and game the world, you're going to find at the end of it that your ladder's been leaning against a false wall. And everything you hope to gain by climbing up it, you've lost. So he says, come and die. Take up your cross and follow me. And I want to close out our service this morning by gathering around this communion table. You know, every month when we do this, it's really a statement of identity, isn't it? Yes, it's remembering what Christ did on the cross, but it's also a statement of identity saying, I will identify with the king who came and died on a cross, and I will live my life for him. You know, in the early church, communion was a pretty controversial thing. In fact, there were many uh, people in the pagan world who one of their um, insults or one of their problems with Christians was they said they were cannibals. They were cannibals because they heard about the communion service where they ate the flesh and drank the blood of their Lord. And so one of their, one of their insults was that they were cannibals because they didn't understand this. And yet they kept doing it throughout church history because it identifies with our Lord because Jesus says when you do this, you remember me. And so when we come to this table, today especially, I want us not only to certainly remember that we have a king, and we have a king that went to a cross, I want us to also remember that if we're going to follow him, we've got to be willing to take up our cross. We've got to be willing to ruthlessly put to death anything within us that stands at odds with the purposes of God. And so here's how I want us to receive communion today. I'm going to do it a little bit differently. I'm going to ask those on the worship team who are going to come. You guys can come. I want you to take some time to think about this call today to come and die. And I want our response to this word to be to come and take communion and receive the, the bread and the juice when you only after you have in your place and in your seat said that prayer and said to God, thanking him for dying on the cross for us, but also asking him to put to death anything that is within us that's contrary to his purposes and that we, by faith, would be willing to carry our cross for him. You may know what that is. You probably don't because you don't know what tomorrow holds. You may not know what that cross is. And you may say, I don't feel like I could. That's the point. We ask God, God, would you give us that strength and put that to death within us so that we can live for you. So what I'm going to ask is I'm going to ask the elders to come and Pastor Brian to come. And here's what we're going to do. Um, I'm going to have one of them stand at each of the front of the aisles and I know it's a little crowded, but, but just bear with me today. I think this is the appropriate response to the word. And when you are ready, I want you to 
come up, when you have felt like, yes, I am ready to thank Christ, thank God for identifying with me and my sin, because that's what he did on the cross, and I am ready to take, and I want to take that step and identify with him and ask him to help me carry that cross for him, then you come up and come to the front of one of these aisles and take the piece of bread and cup of juice and receive communion right there and take the cup, just logistically take the cup back to your seat with you. You can put it in that little spot on the chair in front of you. But you come up after you have had your moment with God. Receive communion and say in that moment, Jesus, thank you for identifying with me. And I want to identify with you by taking up my cross daily, dying to myself and living to you. And then when you do that, go back to your seat and just remain standing and we'll worship together. I understand that moving about and things it might be a little bit tough, but just bear with us. And I think this is the right way for us to respond today. Father, God, forgive us for making this some kind of bumper sticker statement that gets trivialized in our life and our comfortable world. Lord, help us to have a better understanding today what it means when you say, come and die and find that that's when you can truly live. Lord, forgive us for our fear Forgive us for our excuses. Forgive us for choosing our pleasure over your purposes. Father, would you today purify us as your church? Thank you for identifying with us, dying for our sins. May we never, may we never be ashamed to identify.